Great to be back with you tonight. Well, thank you very much, and I'm so appreciative of our wonderful staff, our, our awesome team, uh, Pastor Bobby, uh, Pastor Phil, Pastor Mike, stepping in here, and I just i am grateful for uh, your leadership and you guys, your diligence to the Word of God, even though some of you got a fat head because my microphone is all out of whack, but anyway, <laughs> I love you anyway. Well, guys, we're wrapping it up. We're landing the plane on this series, Life in the third person by third person, talking about the Holy Spirit. Often neglected, churches don't teach on Him enough. Uh, and often when they do, they get it wrong. They, they misconstrue and they misrepresent. And so we have been studying the Holy Spirit, who He is, what He does. And just before Christmas, we, we began to look specifically at the gifts of the Spirit. Because among the many things that He does, the regeneration, the baptism, the sealing, the intercession... All of that, he also gifts us. That is a glorious part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we identified many gifts that believers receive upon trusting Christ as Lord and Savior. They are indwelled by that Spirit and they are gifted by that Spirit with at least one. Most of the time, it's more. And so we've looked at a couple of different categories of those gifts. The first category are what we called the speaking gifts. And we looked at things like uh, uh, apostleship and evangelism and, and prophecy and shepherding and teaching and things like that. The second category, we looked at uh, what we called the serving gifts. And we examined leadership and administration and service and mercy and hospitality, the gift of the South, you know, which is more than just making a good casserole. Uh, but there are those types of gifts. Now we're going to wrap it all up looking at the third and final category of spiritual gifts. And tonight we're going to examine what we call sign gifts. The sign gifts. And I want you to look with me right now in Hebrews 2. And uh, I don't think I need to read the entire uh, section here. I had one through four, but let's just Let's just look at verse 3 and following. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Signs, wonders, and miracles. That is uh, the category that we're in tonight. What are sign gifts? Let me define it for you in your notes. Sign gifts evidence the miraculous power of God in a manner and time of His choosing. Let me say that one more time. Sign gifts evidence the miraculous power of God in a manner and time of His choosing. These are the gifts that get most of the attention. When you study spiritual gifts, talk about spiritual gifts, these are the ones everybody wants to talk about. They want to look at these gifts. Why? They're glamorous. They're exciting. A lot of people call these supernatural gifts. I don't refer to them as supernatural gifts because all spiritual gifts come from who? The Holy Spirit. Who is He? He's a member of the Godhead. He is supernatural. And so therefore, all spiritual gifts are supernatural. Anything that you get from God is supernatural. And so these are no more supernatural than the other spiritual gifts that we've discussed. But they are miraculous. They are miraculous. What does that mean? Uh, what is a miracle? Do we see miracles every day? 
Do we see miracles all the time? Are they commonplace? Well, no. That's why they're called miracles. Let me share with you. I want you to look at a diagram. The first diagram I want to show you, this is how the Jews observed the coming of Messiah. There was the age that they lived in, and you see that on the left there, and then that vertical line represents the coming of Messiah. And they anticipated His coming. And then on the other side of His coming, there would immediately commence the next age, and they called that the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Kingdom. And so they fully expected that this Messiah, whoever he was, he would come and he would inaugurate immediately his kingdom. And it would be a kingdom of the miraculous, one can only suppose. Now, Jesus modified that, okay? And I want to show you the way that Jesus modified that. Look at this uh, diagram right here. You got this age, once again, on the left side. And then that first vertical line, that is the first coming of Jesus. He came, he was born of a virgin. He grew up, lived a perfect life, 33 years, went to the cross for us, died an atonement for our sin, rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and then that's it, right? Or wait, no, he's coming back, isn't it? How many of you believe he's coming back? All right. We're looking forward to that. And so that's what that second vertical line is. It's the second coming of Jesus. But now in between those two comings, you've got the period in which we now live. That's where we are. We're in the church age, okay? But on the other side of that second coming is the age to come. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. But now I want you to notice something. On top, that top line, you see that sentence there, it's the age to come realized in principle. And so the period in which we now live, we who believe are experiencing the age to come in principle, not in reality. What does that mean? All right, you can get rid of that diagram there. What does that mean? That means that right now we are granted occasionally foretaste. First of all, we are subjects of a coming kingdom. Okay, the kingdom is not here yet. You understand that. Not in, in full. But there are subjects. That's you. That's me. Those who follow Christ are subjects of a coming kingdom. And so we are here. Uh, the subjects of the kingdom, but the kingdom is not here yet. But what God has seen fit to do is occasionally He will grant us a foretaste of the coming kingdom. Now, it's January. It's cold. How many of you survived the deluge yesterday? You woke up in a lake, but you're all right, okay? Uh, it's just that time of year. It's a cold down here, it's a rainy, cold. Uh, I grew up in South Dakota. That's a frigid, man, January, February, March. I mean, we're just praying for spring, you know. Uh, but occasionally, there would come a day in those months that would be a freak occurrence. It would be unlike most winter days. It might be a sunny, warm day. It could be in the 70s. It might feel like San Diego there in Sioux Falls, South Dakota in March. It was not the norm. We were grateful for it when it happened. And it was like spring or summer had broken in to February or one of those months. There was an inbreaking of a future season, you see, but it was not the norm. When miracles occur in the period in which we now live, it is, I'm going to give you a big word here that we'll have on the screen. It's an eschatological inbreaking. That's a mouthful. Eschatology is the study of last things. So this is when last things breaks into our present time. And that is, in essence, a miracle, which is a foretaste of an age to come. Amen. 
And God blesses us by allowing us to experience miracles. But we're not intended to believe that they're for every day. They don't happen all the time. They wouldn't be called miracles if they happened all the time. They'd just be called life. And one day, folks, there's an age coming. It will be called life. And it will happen with regularity because the king will be here. The son will be here. All right? So that's the setup for what we're going to talk about. All of these gifts are miraculous, but they are not normative. They are not like the other subsets of spiritual gifts. They don't operate. These are not, in other words, ongoing gifts. They're not ongoing gifts. If I have the gift of teaching, which is a speaking gift, I can open the Word of God. I can teach what's in the Word of God at the drop of the hat. If I have the gift of giving, I, tend, I am generally, uh, by the Spirit, very free with my material possessions, my belongings, my finances, to the glory of God. If I have the gift of hospitality, I naturally, by the Spirit, that is, by new nature, I will make welcome people who, who need to be made, feel, uh, made to feel welcome to the glory of God, okay? You understand where I'm going with this. The gifts we're going to talk about tonight, what did we say? They manifest in miraculous ways in accordance with a manner and time of my choosing, God's choosing. In other words, anyone could be granted these gifts at any moment based on the ordain, uh, ordination of God himself. He may see fit to grant you these gifts in a time and manner of his choosing. So just wanted to kind of set the stage there. Now let's walk through these gifts. The first one I want to look at tonight is called the working of miracles. The working of miracles. Uh, you see the word miracle used 120 times in the New Testament. The root there stresses some, doing something that, that goes contrary to nature. This is not normal. It's not in accordance with the laws of nature. With this particular gift, there's a function, as with all of them. In your notes, the function of this gift, it's to miraculously demonstrate God's power as greater than Satan's. Is God more powerful than Satan? Yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes we need a reminder of that, though, don't we? And so that's what this gift serves, that purpose. There are six forms of the word dunamis, the Greek word dunamis. We see that in the New Testament. It has to do with miracles. It has to do with power, with strength. We get our word dynamite from dunamis. Now, there's a bad exegesis that, that says, ah, dunamis. That's where we get our word dynamite. It means explosive. Some people have interpreted the word as explosive. It, it's something uh, that's robust. That's something that's, that's, that garners attention. Well, that's not the way to think about dunamis. Dunamis has to do with power. It doesn't mean dynamite. There was no dynamite in the New Testament. All right? It has to do with the source of power, not the display of power. Your dunamis could come from any number of sources. It could come from man. It could come from Satan. It could come from your own ability, okay? Or it could come from God. And that's where you want it to come from. But the function here is to demonstrate his power. And so the, the phrase in Greek is energimata dunamion. It's working za, plural, of powers, plural. That is the literal translation. And that double plural most likely means that these gifts were very diverse, that they took different forms, that they were 
uh, not permanently available at the will of the gifted believer. It was as God chose, as God ordained. They were bestowed at specific times and circumstances. And so they were subject to the divine will of God. And some teach that this was given only to the apostles. I don't know whether it was given only to the apostles. I do believe in miracles. I believe they happen today. I believe that God can utilize people uh, in his working of miracles. Here's what 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says. It says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders, and mighty works. That's, that's the word there in the Greek. Uh, in Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works. That's the phrase, and wonders, and signs. And what you'll see, you saw it in the Old Testament with the prophets. Guys like Elijah, guys like Moses, uh, they would perform things that would, it would assert their authority as being granted by God. In the New Testament, obviously Christ did miracles to tell everyone he was the Son of God. The apostles were authorized by God to perform miracles. He granted them authority. Why? Because they were the foundation of the, of the New Testament church. And I believe that miracles still occur today. Not to show that we have any apostolic authority, not to say that we are prophetic in any way, but that our God is a powerful God and He is greater than our enemy, Satan. And so on occasion, God will ordain the workings of miracles. Let me show you some attributes of this gift. One is that you're going to have a heightened sensitivity to the presence and power of God through His Holy Spirit. You're going to be in tune. You're going to know. You're going to have an awareness of the situation, of the moment, of what God is doing. Uh, you will have a special measure of faith. All of these gifts require great faith. They all incorporate great faith. Uh, you're going to, but your faith is to draw others to faith in Jesus Christ. You're, you are believing that God's going to use this situation miraculously to point people to him. You have an understanding that God is a sovereign God. He can work how and when he desires, but you just make yourself available for that moment. Because it's a time of his choosing. You don't know when he's going to choose. And so you're just ready. You're just ready. Are you ready for a miracle, right? You never know when he's going to bring that about. Another attribute is that prayer and strong petition is used by God to reveal glory to his people. All right? So those are some attributes of this gift of the working of miracles. Uh, and by the way, this is a very broad gift because there's a lot of different kinds of miracles. Some of the miracles that would fall under this header will also have their own categories. We're going to talk about healing in just a bit. We're going to talk about uh, the casting out of demons in just a bit. So those obviously are miracles, but there are many undefined, undesignated miracles that would be included in this that apparently happen. We, we, some of them, we don't even know what they were. We just know that the apostles, guys like Stephen, performed such things. We don't have them named, but it was definitely a gifting that God ordained. Here's a caution. Some people who claim to have this gift, and I would say by claiming it, they're claiming that it's an ongoing gift that they could just bust out whenever they want. If they claim to have this gift, often it's because they want to exalt themselves. And folks, none of these gifts are to exalt self. They're all to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a, that's a big caution. That's a caution with all of these, by the way. The second caution is this. Don't chase after miracles. Don't ch be ready for them, 
You could pray for them, but you don't chase out, you don't overemphasize them, you don't build your faith on them. Too many people build their faith on experiential things. Too many uh, people uh, uh, define their Christianity based on going from one encounter to the next encounter. This has got to be more uh, supernatural, more impactful experientially in my life or else they get depressed. Don't chase after miracles. What does Christ say in Luke uh, 11? It, It describes the crowds increasing around him and he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. It's in John 4, 48. He says, unless you see signs, he's disgusted with the people. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's all you want. You're just following me. You want a show. You want a show. Are there any people who call themselves Christians that they're just looking for the next show? They want the next big experience? It's a problem. It's a problem. By the way, don't assume that those most godly will be able to perform miracles. It has nothing to do with your level of godliness. John the Baptist never performed a miracle. Look it up. Never performed a miracle. All right. The next gift I want to talk about is the gift of healing. The gift of healing. Now, this gets a lot of press, doesn't it? Here's what 1 Corinthians 12.9 says. To another faith in the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. So it's obviously a gift. Uh, healing itself would be one of these that is a miracle, would fit under workings of miracles. But it also, in the early church age, in the book of Acts in particular, in the Gospels, it was a specific ministry at that time, and several were uniquely gifted uh, to do it under the command of Christ or the apostles. Here's the function in your notes. It's to miraculously demonstrate God's compassion. That's the function. You say, well, I thought it's to make people better. No, that, that, is, that is the means. That's not the function. The purpose here is to demonstrate the compassion of God in a miraculous way. Karismata uh, yamaton in the Greek is the phrase gifts of healings. And so this is another one that requires a great deal of faith, as with all of these gifts, but despite the faith component, it should be said that there is no guarantee that someone that God imbues with this gift is going to see the person who is the recipient uh, permanently and finally healed. You don't have a gift, or excuse me, you don't have a guarantee of final healing each and every time. Why? Because it's dependent upon the sovereign will of God. Just because someone has engaged in an act of healing before by the power of God does not mean that every time that happens that there's going to be someone healed, you understand. And so it's all about revealing the God of heaven to the sick, to the ill. And if healing is not granted, what are we to conclude then? Are we to say, well, I guess, I guess, I guess there's no God. No, we are to conclude that God has greater plans than what we can conceive of in this moment. That's not always easy for us, is it? What do we want? We want, we want healing. I think of those guys that carried their friend up on the roof of that house, cut a hole in it, lowered him down to Jesus. Jesus sees the man, and seeing their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. What? No, that's not why we came. We wanted him to get up and walk. Later he did. But sometimes God's ways are not our ways. But we do know this. A quarter of the Gospels features healing. And part of this is Christ asserting his authority. 
But not only was it Jesus healing people, he commissions the 12 disciples there to go out and they heal. And then later it's going to be 72 of his followers that he sends them out to heal. Here are the attributes of the gift of healing. All right, you can jot these down if you want. Compassion toward the sick or injured. You gotta have, it stands to reason, right? If you're going to be used of God to heal somebody, you should be compassionate toward them. That's going to be an attribute. You know, you're, you're not going to, God's not going to use you to heal somebody if you're like put out and, you know, you just want to go home and watch football. Can, I, can, I, can you pray for me to be healed? Uh, all right, fine. Lord, heal this guy. You know, are, are you good? Okay. No, you want to be compassionate. You want to be like Christ. Another one is that you have uh, regular prayer is a mainstay in your life. Regular prayer over the physically afflicted. Prayer figures into so many of these miraculous gifts. Another attribute is great faith that God can and will heal some people. He can and will. There's an expectation in your, uh, in your participation of this gift. But we follow that up with this, is that faith is undeterred when God does not heal people. That is very, very important. Uh, was everybody that was that 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 people endeavored to heal in the New Testament were they all healed? No, God sends the twelve out. He sends them out to cast out demons while he's up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were unsuccessful. Uh, Paul prayed. I'm not going to read the passage here, but he prayed three times. Asked God three times, "Take this thorn for me." He had a thorn in the flesh. God said no. He said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul said, well, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so we pray and we pray expectantly. By the way, people have come up to me and, you know, I'm new here and they don't they don't know what I think or believe about different things. And they come up, they go, Pastor Scott, uh, where are you at with healing? Because I, I go, do you need me to pray for you? Do you do that? Yeah. Well, but I was wondering if you could, uh, I go, you want me to anoint you with oil? You do that? Well, yeah. I believe James 5. Any of you sick? Let him call for the elders. And they will anoint him with oil and pray for him and he'll be healed. And so, yes, we do that. We do that frequently. I've spent a lot of time back there with those elders and, and people that come forward to be healed. And we, so we pray over them. And I've had people ask me now, can you guarantee me I'm going to be healed? No. No, I can't. Well, does that mean you don't believe I'm going to be healed? No, I, I, I pray with faith. And what does Scripture say? Any of you lack wisdom, James says, let him ask of the Lord. Let him ask with no doubting, for he who doubts like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So how are we to pray? Expectantly. Do we pray expectantly because... We know the will of God. We don't know the will of God with regard to someone's health. I don't pray expectantly because I know what God is going to do. I pray expectantly because I know who God is. And I know the power of my God. I know what he can do. I believe in his ability to heal. I don't know his will. I don't know his will. And so when he doesn't heal, I'm just going to have to trust him. 
You're going to have to trust him, that he knows what he's doing. How many of you believe God knows what he's doing? Maybe more than you. Maybe. I think so. Does God still heal today? Absolutely he does. Let me say this, though. I think maybe our definition of healing needs to expand. Is God's ways higher than our ways? I think they are. Can God heal in means other than I'm going to lay hands on you and pray over you and you miraculously get healed? Sure. Can God use doctors to heal? Some of you have been healed through doctors. God has used doctors, hospitals, medication, sometimes therapy, depending on what your uh, affliction is. So we need to broaden in terms of what our God has ordained in this world to accomplish his purpose. Just because it doesn't happen in a dramatic fashion doesn't mean it's not miraculous. Because it's of God, it's, of mirac- it's, it's a miraculous thing. I'm going to move on to the next, uh, to the next uh, gift here. It's the gift of deliverance. This is a hot one. Here's the function. In your notes, it's liberation from demonic bond. Oh, by the way, I didn't give you a caution on the healing, did I? Did I give you a caution on the healing? Here's a caution. This is a big one. This is a big one. Go back to caution on healing. Never, never blame someone's lack of faith if they're not healed. If I hear of anybody in here that says so-and-so didn't get healed because they didn't have enough faith... I will personally escort you out of this building. You are not to do that. That is wrong. It is arrogant. It is ungodly. Okay? It is not a lack of faith. There are some godly people that have struggled with stuff that you have no idea. You don't understand it in the least. You do not assume it is their lack of faith that they're not healed. Okay? So let's be careful about that. All right. Deliverance. He's like, Pastor Scott, you're saucy tonight. Okay. Here's your function. Deliverance, it's liberation from demonic bondage. Liberation from demonic bondage. Uh, Greek, it's ekbalo daimonion. Ekbalo means drive out. Daimonion is evil spirits, demons. Okay? Demonic possession, what is that? Here's a definition. Demon possession, it's a condition by which one or more evil spirits inhabit the body of an unbeliever and can take and they can take complete control of their victim at will. Now, there's an important word in what I just said. They inhabit the body of an unbeliever. An unbeliever. All right, I'm going to elaborate on that. But that phrase, demon-possessed, daimonos emanos, you see it used uh, 12 times in the New Testament in the Greek, There are other expressions that you might be familiar with. You might read about a man with an unclean spirit. Same thing, guy who's got a demon. Uh, You'll read of a mute spirit, a spirit of divination. Every time you see somebody uh, with a demon, it's cast out of them. Eventually it's cast out of them, okay? And there's a cause, there's a reason for that. Uh, But Christ commissions the twelve, and here's what he told them in Matthew 10, 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now, that's the 12. Those are the 12. So let's not lose sight of that. And Mark 16, 17, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. And so he's prophesying about the coming, uh, the coming age following his ascension. And so there's going to be an activity of the casting out of demons, which has come to be known as deliverance. Now, I'm going I'm to read to you an account from Scripture that I feel is the most thorough that will give us some distinctions of a demonically possessed individual. 
And it, it's, it's the person that we come to known as, uh, he's come to be known as the, the Gerasene demoniac. All right? So here we are. We're in Mark 5, verse 1. They, that would be Christ and the, uh, the disciples, they came to the other side of the sea. Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. All right? So here we've got this guy. He comes running. He's been hanging out in the tombs. That's creepy. And he's got an unclean spirit. He's demon-possessed. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. So what do we see as a distinction already? Is that demon-possessed individuals can possess abnormally uh, superhuman strength. All right? This guy cannot be bound. It says in verse 4, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So he's got strength to break metal chains and shackles, Obviously, there are fits of rage that accompany this. Verse 5, it says, Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. What does that sound like? Self-harm. Self-mutilation. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that... Today, that's kind of a thing that people do that struggle with depression or different psychological issues, and they might cut themselves. Not everybody that does that is demon-possessed, but it certainly is a character trait of some that are. There, there's a, a, a desire to bring harm to oneself. Verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, watch this now, he ran and fell down before him as though he's in need of help. It's like he runs to Christ. Did you notice that? He's running to Christ, and he falls down at his feet. But then watch, verse 9, and Jesus asked him, oh, excuse me, verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. That's, that's, that's a contradiction in action and word right there. I'm noticing a few things. There seems to be a split personality going on, a multiple personality situation happening here. On the one hand, he's running to Jesus for help. And yet there are voices crying out from within him saying, what do you have to do with me? Don't torment me. And in the middle of that, there appears to be some clairvoyance. He recognizes Jesus. He's never met him. He doesn't know him, but he he does know him. Calls him by name. And then third, there's a resistance to spiritual things. He doesn't want Christ to speak to him, which he is doing. In verse 8, Christ is saying to him, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? You note the authority Christ has. And he has to answer. He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion. What's a legion? In the Roman army. A whole bunch. Somebody said a whole bunch. He's not wrong. A legion. A lot say, well, legion, that's a thousand. It's kind of become the, the number. It's a thousand soldiers in a Roman legion. But in actuality, in the Roman army, a legion could be anywhere from from three to six thousand. Three to six thousand. So somewhere in there is how many demons are in this guy. How can that be? Well, they're, they're spirit. They're spirit. And so they, they can inhabit small places. They can all be in there. And maybe they're all talking at once. So you can have multiple voices coming out of this one cat, this one dude. Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
The demon is begging Christ, don't send us out of the country. There's another account of this same story in Luke 8. And the way it reads there, it says, And they, the demons, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. What is the abyss? In verse 11, it says, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, and they entered the pigs in the herd, numbering about 2,000. 2,000 pigs. They rushed down. So what that means is there's at least 2,000 demons. We know that. Because it's at least one demon per pig. So you probably got more. That's a lot of demons in one dude. And they, in, they go into the pigs, and uh, it says they rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That, what a waste of bacon. Oh. Oh. Oh, man, Satan is evil. I got to tell you, ruined that much bacon. Now, why did they? This is called transference, by the way. Demon comes out of one entity, transfers into another entity. Why did they want to go in the pigs? They didn't want to go into the abyss. They begged him, don't send us into the abyss. What is that? That is a spiritual place. Uh, if you were with us in our Genesis study, part one of Genesis in chapter six, we talked about the sons of God. And the daughters of men, how the sons of God were fallen angels. They were disobedient spirits. And, and they ended up in this place. We, we uh, cross-reference with 1 Peter chapter 3. And we see that Christ, when he's crucified, his body's in the tomb. And the spirit, he's made alive. He goes and he preaches to those spirits in prison who disobeyed in the days of Noah. What prison? They were in the abyss. They were in chains of everlasting darkness. And here's why they didn't want to go to the abyss. Because once you're there, you don't get out. You are under the authority of the one who sent you there. And so Christ would not let them out of the abyss. So they begged him, don't send us to the abyss. Send us into those pigs. And Christ grants that. Now, why did Christ not send them into the abyss? I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm not going to make something up and tell you. I really don't know. I really don't know. But he didn't. Maybe, maybe he wanted to make some observation using swine. I have no idea. But uh, this story gives us some distinctions about what a demon-possessed individual may look and act like, you understand. And so there, there would be this gift ordained by God to free people from demonic bondage in that time. Now, here are some attributes of this gift. You're operating in Christ's power. You're operating in Christ's power. It's his authority. You, you would never, ever, ever want to deal with the demonic on your own authority. Uh, the sons of Sceva found out about that. All right? In, in the book of Acts, they went out and they tried to cast out demons. And the demon said, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And then he proceeded to kick their tail. And they ran naked and bleeding. All right, uh, you got a, another attribute, the recognition that all you have, uh, that you have rather, all you need to wage war against the devil. We studied Ephesians. What did we study? The armor of God. You put on the armor of God. You gird yourself with the belt of truth. You wear that breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You are equipped when God grants you this gifting. You operate in accordance with biblical principles. That would also involve a proper diagnosis that what you are dealing with is, in fact, demonic possession. 
Because I regret to inform you that not every person out there trying to cast demons out of people is dealing with an authentically demon-possessed person. They are identifying some physical issue as a demon, and that's ridiculous. And so you need to be very careful. You need to be very prayerful. You need to, be, think, you need to think very biblically about what you're dealing with. Not, you know, and by the way, can a Christian be demon-possessed? No. No, look, these demons didn't want anything to do with Jesus. You think they want to set up camp with the Holy Spirit? And would the Holy Spirit even share space with them? No. No, when you are born again, you are indwelled by the Spirit. He takes a permanent residence in you. He is not going to share space with the demonic, with the unclean. And by the way, the only reason, and I see a lot of deliverance ministries, and I, 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 I hate that term because I think deliverance is such a beautiful term. Let me explain something. Deliverance is salvation. Why were people delivered from the demonic? It's so that they might be redeemed. That they might be saved. When, when you are born again, my friend, you are delivered. That's deliverance. You don't need to have a demon cast out of you after you're born again. The only reason deliverance ministries uh, will cast demons out of the same people over and over and over and over and over is because... Those people have never received Christ, or more likely, uh, the ministry believes that Christians can be possessed by demons, or they believe that a Christian can lose their salvation. And I contend that they cannot. And if you want to know why I believe that, come next week and I'm going to talk about it. Okay. All right. So. Do I believe in demons? I absolutely do. My family in ministry, my father's a pastor. We've, we've had experience with the demonically possessed. I've seen deliverance ministry done biblically, done appropriately. Uh, I believe a lot of deliverance ministry is, uh, is tangled up in false belief, in an overemphasis on this. It has become a centerpiece of their ministry. Let me communicate something to you. We are not commanded to have an ongoing ministry of casting out of demons. We're not. These gifts are not something that we just uh, pull out whenever we feel like it. This is something that God ordains at the right moment. We don't go looking for it. Uh, the Gospels give us a narrative. Christ asserts his authority. He is the object and the basis of our faith. The book of Acts gives us the, the history, the foundation of the church, and the authority of the apostles as the foundation for that. Where do we as Christians get our manual our blueprint, our instruction book for how to do Christianity and do church, the epistles of Paul. Is there any instruction about casting out demons in any of Paul's letters? Not one. Not one. And so even Christ does not give a lot of instructions on that. He tells his disciples, you know, this demon can't be cast out with anything but prayer. That's it. So there is no list of what to do and how to do it and all of that stuff. It is a supernatural gift of God in the moment. In the moment. And it's at his choosing and his ordination. All right, And I would give you a more of a, a simple, uh, 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 steady state method to dealing with the demonic. Because the fact is, our world is filled with demonic influence. And you will come into contact with it, and you probably don't even recognize it, because you're looking for a scene out of The Exorcist. And I promise you, you, in, you encounter it more often than that. How are you to deal with it? 2 Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Sounds pretty simple. Sounds like the Christian life. 
correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, who? Our opponents. That's his word, the lost. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may, listen, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Folks, if that ain't deliverance, I don't know what is. I didn't see any casting. I didn't see any tell me your name, calling out bitterness, envy, strife, giving phrases in repeat. I see any. I see writhing on the ground. I'm seeing the Christian life lived under the lead of the Holy Spirit, communicating with humility and love and grace. This is how we conduct ourselves in real life. Now, on occasion, you may be faced with a very visceral encounter. It will not be at your choosing, and God will grant you the ability to deal with it in that moment, should he ordain that. Okay? Here's a caution. you got to be saved to do it. That should go without saying. you got to know the Word of God. you got to be doctrinally sound. Okay? Which I believe a lot of people attempt this and are not. And you don't go looking for demons. We're never told to do that. We're never told to do that. So are we called to a deliverance ministry? No, we're not called to it. God may ordain us in a moment to do it, but it's not an ongoing ministry of the church, as I've already pointed out. But deliverance is salvation. You're born again, you have victory. You have victory. Okay, physical protection. I'm I'm going long because there's a lot of content. Physical protection. This is the next gift. Here's the function. Miraculously picture our preservation in Christ. It's a miraculous picture of your preservation in Christ. Mark 16, 18 says they will pick up serpents. Some of you are like, uh-oh. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Some of you are like, okay, I know where this is going. I got a cousin in West Virginia. What is this? Well, in Acts 28, I'm not going to read it all, but there's an instance I, I submit to you that this is a gift manifested uh, early on among the apostles. And I believe this prophetically, what we just read, points to something that happened to Paul. Paul was on a ship. He was shipwrecked. Comes ashore on the island of Malta. He's with his compatriots. There's a fire. He's trying to get wood for a fire. A serpent affixes to his hand. And the people there, the natives, they say, Oh, he's a dead man. He must have ticked off the gods. Paul proceeds to shake his hand into the fire. They watch him. He never keels over. God sustains him. This was a venomous serpent that bit him. He should be dead. He's not. Miracle. Miracle. Physical protection. It's a gift ordained by God. Ordained by God. Here's an attribute. Fearlessness in the face of danger. So what is this not? It's not we're mandated to have snakes on stage and dance around with them. That's not what it is. This is physical protection. That's just one example of physical protection. Some of you have experienced physical protection, and you would describe it as miraculous. I don't know your stories. I've got one, too. All right? Did God protect me? Absolutely, he did. Uh, But an attribute would be fearlessness in the face of danger. And when I say that, I say that you are aware of God protecting you, and in that moment, you are not afraid. This is not being a daredevil. This is not you being an idiot running up to Hanging Rock and jumping off and saying, look what God can do. (laughs) 
Another attribute is confidence in the Lord's ability to protect. You've got great faith. I think of missionaries that walk into a lion's den and they know that there's possibility of death or persecution and they go anyway and they go boldly. Same kind of gift. Uh, miraculous preservation when death is all but certain. Okay? Here's some cautions for you. This is not an ordinance of the church. These gifts are not ordinances. So no, we're not to pick up copperheads and, and dance around and things like that. You see that documentary where the guy got bit? and he, Oh, pathetic. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Tongues. Tongues. All right. This is maybe the most well-known. When we think of the miraculous gift, this is the one that people think of. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And God appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Tongues. Now listen, he says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Well, first of all, are all apostles? Not in this sense. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing do all speak in tongues so what this verse seems to imply is that not all christians have this gift so are we to are we to attempt this every one of us no it's something that god ordains the word for tongues is the same word for languages it's glossa glossa means that you have the ability the gift of tongues in that moment is the ability to speak in a language you have never before learned. You've never before, and it's a real... Now, this could refer to two things when we say glossa. Number one, it's a recognizable human language, as in Acts chapter 2. Number two, it could be an angelic language. So, Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the emphasis there is on our need to be loving. The emphasis is not on the angelic language, you understand, but it does allow for that interpretation. Now, here's the function in your notes. The function of the gift of tongues is one of two things. It's either evangelism or it's edification. Evangelism or edification. Geneglosa, kinds of languages. How could tongues be a form of evangelism? Acts chapter 2. It's, it's the Feast of Pentecost, or Hebrew, Shavuot, right? And so you got Jews from all these different countries. They're not native to Jerusalem, but they're in town for this feast. They speak all these different languages. What's happening with the apostles? They're moping around. Jesus has ascended. Holy Spirit comes in, indwells them. Tongues of fire appear over them. They come out, Peter and all the gang, and they're uttering things. They're speaking and they're speaking the languages, the various dialects and tongues of all these visitors to Jerusalem, and they hear and understand in their own language. And the apostles didn't know these languages beforehand. It's a miracle. And it's for the purpose of evangelism in Acts 2. Now, it can also be a form of prayer. Speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Okay, so some people pray in tongues, whether it's a heavenly tongue, maybe it's another language. Is, is that something that happens? I think it can. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. 
It's interesting that 1 Corinthians 14 is the passage that talks about tongues more than any other passage in the entire Bible, but the context is its abuse of excess in the church. If you read that chapter, it's mostly about how they go overboard with it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 19, Nevertheless, in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. That's, that's pretty bold. So what was happening in Corinth is that Paul has to address the overuse of tongues because everybody wants to manifest this gift. Now, maybe some are legit, but I'm betting you there were some posers. I'm just betting you that there were some me-toos. Hey, hey, me-too. And they started to pretend to speak in tongues. And in Acts, the beginning of the church was evidenced by the manifestation of tongues and authentically for the purpose of drawing how many? 3,000 to faith on day one. A megachurch. Boom. In a moment. And so that's a pretty exciting gift. And so these people want that gift. And so they're neglecting all these other wonderful gifts. And Paul is setting them straight. And he doesn't forbid the use of tongues. In 1 Corinthians 14.5 he says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather see you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church be edified. And so it's, he makes it clear that tongues is inferior to some other gifts. He, in verse 39, he says, My brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things, careful now, all things should be done decently and in order. Amen. In order. Here are some attributes, okay? What does this look like? It is the temporary supernatural ability to communicate using language that you have never learned. And that can be... And I would say in Scripture, most of the time, it's an actual, identifiable, recognizable human language. Okay? Uh, another attribute is that there is intimacy with God that goes beyond the limitation of words. That would be in relation to your prayer time, if you are praying in a, in, in a heavenly language, as Paul seems to imply there is. There is also the promotion of the gospel that goes beyond the limitations of your own language. So you're able to evangelize. So this gift could be used. God may ordain it in conjunction with the speaking gift of evangelism. And then another attribute, there's encouragement from God for another brother or sister working in conjunction with another gift of interpretation, which we're going to look at in, in just a moment here. Here's a caution. 1 Corinthians 14 is full of cautions. I encourage you to read it if you want understanding. All you got to do is read. Paul explains this as good as I am. Better than I am, all right? But know this, an overemphasis on tongues will lead to confusion and mixed up priorities. You're going to elevate the supernatural or the miraculous gifts above the more practical gifts. And you need to know, according to Paul, tongues is an inferior gift. It's an inferior gift. He's very clear about that. I would also caution, I would say that we should be intelligible. You must be. God is not interested in unintelligible noise. Okay? He is not a God of chaos. He is not a God of chaos. Now, there are some who have taught that tongues have ceased, that they've passed away. Why did they teach that? 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. 
For knowledge, it will pass away. As we know, in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so there are people that teach that tongues doesn't exist anymore because the perfect has come. What is that? They define the perfect that has come. No, they say the perfect that has come is the closing of the canon of Scripture. And so they say since the, the canon is complete, we don't need tongues anymore. Okay, uh, I think that's, that's a little presumptuous to, to interpret it that way. I think a better definition for the perfect has come is the second coming of Christ. I think that when Jesus comes back, that's when the perfect has come. Because if you go on in this same passage, verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Who are we going to see face to face? Jesus. Jesus. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully Even as I have been fully known one day, we're going to see him face to face as we sang a moment ago, even so, come Lord Jesus. Won't that be sweet? That's the perfect. And so I I allow for the, the notion that tongues exist now, but we've got to be in order. And sadly, a lot of churches where this is emphasized are in disorder. And they don't follow the guidelines. And there is another gift that needs to be used in conjunction with this gift. And it's the final one we're going to look at. And it's the gift of the interpretation of tongues. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12.10 To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, uh, another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. So it's reasonable if tongues is a gift and some were exercising that all by themselves, then you would need interpretation of tongues for that to bear any fruit whatsoever. Because without interpretation, is tongues worth anything? Paul's already said no. What good is a prophet anybody if they can't understand you? So here's your function. Miraculously translating the unknown to others. Miraculously translating the unknown. Uh, Hermania glossa means interpret languages. Uh, hermeneutics comes from hermania, interpretation. Uh, you, you particularly, you, you interpret what is spoken obscurely, okay? To uh, translate a foreign language that you, uh, you don't know into the language of the hearers or to translate a language you do know into a language that you don't know, okay? And so we see this in the New Testament. It's always used alongside this other gift. Now, keep in mind, I'm not saying... When you go to next steps, there may be a spiritual gifts test that you'll take. None of these gifts are going to be on that test. Why not? Because they, they manifest at the choosing of the Lord. This is not an ongoing gift that you use naturally. God ordains it. So it could happen to anybody. Here's some attributes. You translate something in an unlearned language. I already said that. Another attribute, you've got a strong desire to see people respond to what God wants to say to them. Yet another, you have a strong desire to see the gospel penetrate all barriers, especially language barriers. And the whole point here is that people benefit, okay? You, you are, your gift makes the gift of tongues. I mean, if, if God is manifesting interpretation, that's making the gift of tongues in someone else valuable. 
Paul has guidelines. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn. How many of you, well, I don't, you don't need to raise your hand, but some of you have been in some charismatic environments. And by the way, I love, I've got dear, dear, beloved friends and relatives that are, that are charismatic. I love them. have no problem with them. But there are some hyper-charismatic views that are dangerous, and there's some misuses of this stuff. And they'll get in a room where there's, you know, 50 people, and they're all, you know, they're all going off. And that's not what Paul says to do. I'm, don't get mad at me. It's Paul. And so he says, let someone interpret. And if there is no one to interpret, let them keep silent. Shut it. Here's a caution. Any interpretation must be checked against Scripture. Buddy, that's important. If something's from God, it will match up with His Word. Otherwise, there's no benefit. Uh, another caution, do not try to interpret gibberish. This is a real language. Glossa, it's a real language. Okay? So, you know, there's a lot of posers out there. Don't be a poser by trying to and interpret. Okay. First Corinthians 14, 9. So with yourselves, if, with your tongue, if you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. None are without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. Man, I, I don't know how it could be more clear. And I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is a God of, not a, uh, not a God of confusion, but of peace. Amen. He's a God of peace. Amen. Well, that's all I've got for you folks. I just wanted to share uh, the treasure of his word with you tonight. It's been a wonderful little study. I've appreciated your attentiveness on this. And I thank you for the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics, the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon this group. Make them bold. Help them be aware of their identity in you. And always be ready, God, for when you want to bestow upon them your gifting for a specific moment that will serve your purpose. And what a blessing that is when that happens. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.